0: If you'd open up to Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to set the, um, give you a little bit of the the, the setting here for the Sermon on the Mount instead of jumping right in. I want you to get an insight into Jesus's ministry. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 4 verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth. And he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray before we continue. Lord, these are your words. These are your teaching as alive and penetrating today as they were the day that they were spoken. That as we hear the words of Jesus, as we look at his ministry That we will see who He is, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And what He declares, His kingdom, not any earthly kingdom made by the hands of man. And that the Holy Spirit would use me to guide and convict and encourage by His power, through His wisdom, nothing of my own, that today would be an honor and glory to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew is probably um, the most complete account of from the, the, the Jewish perspective of Jesus's ministry. Matthew was the tax collector, the Jew of Jews. He knew the rites, the rituals, he knew the customs, and he was very careful to include details that would make sense to Jews who needed to know that the Messiah had come. One of those quotes he uses toward the end of the book, he says in in chapter 24, 35, quotes the words of Jesus saying, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Jesus performed a lot of miracles, but the things that he rested his ministry on were his words. Eternal truth. So much so that when John wrote his gospel, Jesus is the word, the eternal word love that children's song and we sing, and I don't know if children still sing it anymore, but he's got the whole world in his hands. Good, I hope we do. But even better, we have his whole word in our hands. We can sing, and can praise Christ because as the Son of God came flesh incarnate and spoke and walked on earth, all the scriptures declare his glory and declare who he is. But sadly, many churches, many people approach the scriptures like a hungry child at the grocery store. Ever taken a hungry kid to the grocery store? I used to be one of those hungry kids because they go straight to the candy aisle. They go straight to the ice cream and the brownies. They want what they want now. Rarely does the hungry kid go to the broccoli or the spinach or the nourishment that they need. But yet the grocery store contains all the minerals and the nutrients and the vitamins we need to be healthy. Yet a lot of times, we approach scripture like we do when we're hungry and trying to run to the store real quick. What can I eat quickly? What can can nourish me for a moment but won't sustain me for time? We like to pick and choose the things about Jesus depending on our appetites. Well, I want to feel good about myself. I want the sugar rush. I want to feel great. Now, When we go through the Sermon on the Mount, there are going to be those moments of encouragement. There are going to be the cookies that we eat and they feel satisfying, make us feel good for a moment. There's also going to be the asparagus. It's not so great going down as much, but it will sustain us over time. There are things in Jesus' teaching that are a little bit hard to swallow for many. But they will sustain us over time. And he is the bread of life. The living water, that flows. So let's let Jesus's words and Jesus's teaching in his ministry define who he is. Because sadly, we like to we like the comfortable parts of Jesus. Um, but we don't like the parts where it's uncomfortable. We, we like his righteous love and his righteous mercy. We don't necessarily like his righteous anger and his righteous judgment. But when you live under a king, and if he is truly king of kings and lord of lords, you don't pick which of the king's laws you live under. You live under his rule. If we step into our marriages and say to our spouses that, I love you only when you feed my ego. I love you only when you say things I like to hear, not the things I need to hear. Or I love your nose, but you should probably change your lips you know as christians sometimes we become what hollywood has done and and perform plastic surgery to jesus right pretty soon he becomes unrecognizable because with fake everything what really are we looking to and so most of you may not think in those in those terms but Every conversation I have with Jesus, uh, with someone about Jesus, um, I'm thinking, who is the Jesus that they know? Who are who do they say that that they're praying to? And many times it's not the Jesus of the Bible. They mix in sayings of Gandhi or or Buddha or popular news stories. That's not biblical. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. When you walk through Jesus's teachings, it's very clear on who he is. He declares who he is. So let's be very careful and intentional as we walk through this passage this morning. Context is important for us. This is probably the most well-known sermon, the most well-known discourse of all time. And as far as we know, uh, this is probably kind of a a highlight reel of Jesus' teaching. If you read through this, uh, and I have chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, it takes about 13 minutes. But what we know about Jesus' teaching when he fed the 5,000 lasted for hours and sometimes days. Crowds and crowds were coming for him to listen to him teach. So when Matthew gives this account, uh, it's it's not inaccurate of Jesus' teaching. If he put all of Jesus' teaching, like John tells us, all the books in the world could not contain Jesus' teaching, uh, we wouldn't be able to digest it. But Matthew accounts the most uh, poignant parables Lessons and um, descriptions of the kingdom that Jesus gives us, and so over the next twenty-two or so weeks, we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount, looking at a different each one of these applications each week. And um, it was given to his disciple and disciples and great crowds. And we're going to see that in just a minute. The crowds that followed him, and there's also fifty imperatives that are given within the Sermon on the Mount. Fifty imperative, fifty commands. People who want to know God, to follow Christ, who want to see his kingdom. This is what he expects of you. And so we're going to see in just a moment that up until this sermon, as far as we know, his teaching was primarily to the disciples and in the synagogues. And he was proclaiming as he was walking, but he wasn't speaking to the masses in a mass context. And so we're going to see that this morning. So what's the first thing we see here about Jesus' ministry in verse 23. He went throughout all of Galilee, doing three things. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. First thing, teaching. What did Jesus' teaching look like? Ever wonder, like, what would it be like to sit under Jesus' teaching? When he stood up in the synagogue everyone took notice and everyone glorified him. Uh, But Luke gives us kind of a detailed perspective, a detailed account of what happened there. So if you would turn to Luke chapter four for me, we're going to see what Jesus' teaching looked like. Luke chapter four, we're going to read verses 14 through 21. Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all of the surrounding country, and he taught in all their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place in where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent to me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled at your hearing. Jesus opened up Isaiah 61 verse 1. And Isaiah prophesied for the one to come who'd be anointed by God to proclaim the good news to the poor, to heal, to bring restoration. Jesus was saying, it is I. I'm the one standing before you today. As you'll see in just a moment, I want to get to that little detail that he stood up and then he sat down. Why did Luke include that? Why is that important for what we understand? We're going to come back to that in just a moment. The second thing we see that Jesus went preaching. There's a difference between teaching and preaching. Teaching is kind of uh, akin to instruction. It was leading in knowledge. Preaching, the word is more of a, it's a proclamation. It's heralding. When Jesus Preached, We see that in Matthew 4, 17, just a few verses before when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is proclaiming. The kingdom has come. The teaching is that it is I who has come. So Jesus taught. And he proclaimed. Think about Jesus as preacher, perfectly indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the truth of God to people. Now, the normal preacher, at best, we can hope to humble ourselves. And any preacher who is faithful to the word comes very, very humbly before God, hoping to not screw it up. That is my constant prayer, that my desire to give you information does not overstate or confuse the work of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, as a preacher, perfectly spoke to what every person needed to hear. And he spoke to the issues of the heart. And We're going to see that unfolded in the Sermon on the Mount. He also healed. We know him as the great physician, fulfilling Isaiah 61, that I'm going to perform these miracles. I'm going to show you my power so that you listen to my words. So why did Jesus preach and teach and heal? He came to fulfill those words. He came to bring his kingdom into this world. He said, "My king, your kingdom come, Father, and your will be done. Jesus was that kingdom incarnate come. He was giving them a foreshadowing of that perfect kingdom of truth and reconciliation. The blind will see, the lame will be healed, and the gospel will be proclaimed. That is the, the, the glimpse that we get of, of his kingdom of what it will be like when that is in complete fulfillment. John the Baptist also heard about Jesus' reputation and he draws this interesting connection. If you turn again in Matthew chapter 11, if you guys are not used to flipping around in your Bibles, you keep one finger in Matthew, or we're going to flip around, or Matthew chapter 4, or we're going to flip around a little bit. Um, because I think it's so important to look at these things in context and let's see what all of Scripture says about what we're talking about. So Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 2. This is very interesting on what John the Baptist asks and how Jesus responds. Matthew 11, verse 2. Now, when Jesus heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answered him, Go, go. Tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So it goes from this anointing to heal to those who are not offended by him. Jesus starts with blessed. We're going to see that in just a moment as we get into the first of the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude comes from the Latin. It just simply means blessed. And I'm going to talk about that word blessed in just a moment. But John was asking, are you the one we're looking for? Jesus drew that connection. Yes, it is I and blessed are those who are not offended at me. Which is why the catechism we read earlier is so important that we know who Jesus is and we are not offended that he is the only way to salvation. That we don't give in to the temptation of wanting to think all religions are equal and because they believe something different, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Either they're a liar or Jesus was. So, As we go back to our text, we see the response to all these healings. Verse 25. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I want you to look at that. Um, We have a map, but I want you to see this. This is pretty amazing, and I love that I have a laser pointer to work with. This is the Sea of Galilee here. Jesus, most of his ministry was right here, but the text says they came from Syria, which is up here. It's off the map. Syria was far north, Decapolis, far east, in Judea, uh, Samaria, Jerusalem right here. So Jesus' little ministry here with no internet, no, no telegraph, no mail spread throughout all of the Middle East. And they said beyond the Jordan. So it wasn't even worth mentioning this area over here that was beyond the Jordan. So crowds, crowds upon crowds were coming from all over the area. And his fame spread throughout the area. So just like now when people see something amazing, they tell their friends, wait, look, you got to come see this. Now we kind of get our get our phones ready, hoping we can we we can capture it and and get it on video. But there was there was that sense then that something amazing is happening. Come see this. And the crowds came from miles around. They came to see something incredible. But they didn't expect to learn something incredible as well. And I think that's the same now. In our culture, we love TV more than we love to read. We want to see something. Show me something. Entertain me. But I don't necessarily want to learn anything. I don't want to be challenged. I just want to be entertained. Jesus knew that they wanted more more miracles. Jesus could have performed miracles 24 hours a day. But he spent more time teaching. Because remember, his words will not pass away. The words were the foundation of, of his ministry and who he was. The people wanted miracles, but he came to bring them truth and conviction and hope, eternal truth. Jesus didn't rest on his miracles. Now, they were the entertainment, the attention getter that draw people in so they could hear his teaching. I want you to picture this uh, as, as we get into chapter five, verse one, where Jesus says he or excuse me, Jesus saw the crowds he went up on the mountain and we sat down. His disciples came to him. So this is kind of the um, ancient Palestinian version of a drive in movie where everyone kind of comes up. They're all looking in one direction. They come and because there were so many people. He had to go up on a mountain. Now, the word mountain is it's it's kind of used when, when we think mountain. Not that we have anything in Florida to compare to a mountain. We have mounds or maybe hills. Um, but if you look at the, the Galilean area on, on a map, there's all kinds of little mountains, little hills. And it was something along the size of, um, of a small mountain so that people could see him and they could still hear him. He went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, the disciples came there. Maybe never seen Maybe never seen Preacher, sit down for a message. Remember, I said earlier that there was something unique about why Jesus, when Jesus stood up in the synagogue, because there was a difference in Jewish culture that when they sat and taught, the rabbis would would teach their disciples and would teach in the synagogue, sitting in a circle. The ones who were standing. Um, were typically the Isaiahs, the Jeremias, the Ezekiels, somewhat a prophet who had a declaratory message to send. So one, Jesus spoke as one with authority, but he stood up when he grabbed He took the scroll of Isaiah. And it was, I'm here to declare to you a truth. And then he sat down. When Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he sat down as a rabbi teaching little children, as one who is instructing, but also as one in authority. Because when you put yourself above someone, when you you stand up and look down, it was as a a king sitting on his throne. I'm going to teach you like this. So as he began to teach, and we're going to see this over the next several weeks, he taught things that were very familiar. Next week, we're going to see the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. He taught on salt and light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He taught that he came to fulfill the law. He taught about anger, one of the longest sections in the Sermon on the Mount. He knew we were prone to anger. He taught about lust. We could a long time talking about the lust in our lives and the lust in society. He talked about divorce, the pain that comes from broken marriages, God's plan for marriage. He talked about oaths. We're a culture that doesn't honor our word, that doesn't care if our yes is yes and our no is no. Talk about retaliation. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Loving your enemies. Not Not a comforting teaching to hear. It's about giving to the needy. He gave us the Lord's Prayer. He gave instruction for fasting. Not to do it in the eyes of men, but to do it before God. Talk about laying up treasures in heaven. We're going to talk about that in just a moment as we explain what the kingdom of heaven is. About not being anxious. The number one command in all of Scripture is don't worry, be not afraid. The longest section in the Sermon on the Mount is don't be anxious. Talks about judging others. Talks about asking that it will be given. Talks about Golden rule we love to quote but don't fully understand. Uh, and a tree and its fruit that it bears. Also talks about those who do things in his name but don't know him. And he concludes with those who build their house on a rock, that their foundation be in him. And he finished in Matthew's narrative finishes with and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished as He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So over the next several weeks, we're going to touch on each one of those. Some things we can say and some things we can see. The king of kings came down from heaven, left his throne to sit and teach as he was teaching children, sit in a mountain. And for hours, sometimes days, the people who came listened to him speak. And we're going to do that. I hope I can do it justice over the next several weeks. But we're only going to cover one of the Beatitudes this week. Next week, we're going to cover the the rest. But if the Sermon on the Mount had a thesis statement, Matthew 5, 3 would be it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This summarizes the rest of the Beatitudes and exemplifies them. This one simple statement, three themes, blessed, poor in spirit, and kingdom of heaven. Blessed. I want you guys to get this. Um, the original word, it, it, means, it, it means more of, of happy and happiness, makarios, um, when it was translated in the King James, they used happiness um, because that word, happiness, came from the old English root of hap. And the the, the same place we get um, happenings or happenstance. The idea was basically whatever happens, whatever comes along, I'm good. I'm happy in those things. I have this sustained happiness, this sustained countenance that is synonymous with blessedness. Now, in our culture, we've we've kind of diluted the word happy. Um, you know, we, we, we write songs about it and, you know, Bobby McFerrin and Pharrell and all these other songs that been written about happiness. It's not a sustained happiness. It's based on a feeling. It's based on circumstances. That's not the blessedness that we see here in the Beatitudes. And that's why most of your translations use as blessed. Because when we look at blessed, it's a sustained happiness. The highest good being favored by God and you are happy because of it. It's the favor that determines the happiness, not the circumstances. Blessedness is assured, but happiness is shakable. You know, as Americans, we love happiness. <laughs> I mean, it it is in our founding documents, the pursuit of happiness. And for us, it's, well, whatever makes you happy. We know that gets dicey really quick. Because for some people, they are happy to rob and steal and lie and cheat. Happiness itself is not blessedness in our context. But blessedness is favored by God and happiness sustained over time. I mean, that. Is a godly ideal. Next week, we're going to look at these beatitudes and the sermon title is blessedness is next to godliness. And yes, I use that very intentionally. So blessed are the poor in spirit. This word poor. uh, Yes, it's used for the financially poor, but the root of the word is destitute. It's a visual term that means to cower. So when you are poor, you are cowering. You do not have your own strength. You bring nothing of your own. The poor in spirit recognize their moral bankruptcy. They recognize that they have nothing to contribute on their own. They are broken people. David knew what it was like to be broken before the Lord. Psalm 51 is one of those great psalms where David is pouring out his heart before the Lord. Psalm 51, 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When David sinned against God with Bathsheba, he came and tore his clothes. He poured out his heart before the Lord. He was poor in spirit. He was destitute before the Lord. Another one of those great examples is in Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66 is another text that Jesus fulfills. It tells you about his, the king, his kingdom, and who belongs to it. Isaiah chapter 66, if you can turn there with me, great. If not, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand is made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That is who belongs in the kingdom. Those who tremble at his word. Remember the eternal word that will never pass away. It's the opposite of our culture, right? We love bravado. We love swag and touchdown celebrations and beating our chests. But our God is strong. So we don't have to be. He is made. His strength is is declared in our weakness. It's not the arrogance of our culture. It's not the arrogance of Pharaoh. When Moses came to him and said, let my people go, thus saith the Lord. Moses said, who is this Yahweh? Why should I obey him? I don't know him and I'm not going to let his people go. That is not poor in spirit. We know what happened to Pharaoh. His salvation is not for those who are arrogant and who don't need saving. Pharaoh didn't need a savior, and it's not the healthy but the sick who need a doctor. It's also not the people who think they can perform their own surgery. I mean, poor in spirit, is not I can fix myself, but I don't need Jesus. That's why it's so important, again, with that catechism earlier, there's one way to salvation. We cannot heal heal ourselves. It's also why you've heard that doctors make the worst patients. They think they know everything. They think they can heal themselves. They don't recognize their own frailty and their own weakness. But Jesus came, came to proclaim the kingdom is at hand. Repent. Because Christ is the king. And he reigns in hearts and lives. And it is those that cower before him, recognizing their own poverty And their unworthiness. Uh, Sometimes I think about illustrations and I'm like, should I use this or should I not? Uh, Many of you might remember Wayne's World. You know, this just came to my mind and I couldn't get it out of my mind that we're not worthy. We're not worthy. They they worshipped these rock gods to them. And we see teenage girls worship singers and we see. Football fans worship football players. They almost bow down before, and Wayne and Garth definitely bowed down to their their rock idols. It's a really silly way of saying that we are not worthy, truly, to come before a perfect and holy God in our own strength. We must be poor in spirit. We must be contrite. We must be broken before our God. Because in the kingdom of heaven, being poor is truly being rich. Being last is truly being first. And the way up for us is the way down. So what is this kingdom of heaven? I actually found a great definition in the dictionary. I said, man, I'm going to stick with this. Kingdom in the dictionary, as one of their examples, they use the domain over the spiritual sovereignty, excuse me, the domain over which the spiritual sovereignty of God or Christ extends, whether in heaven or on earth. I love that. The domain over which the spiritual sovereignty of God or Christ extends, whether in heaven or on earth. Um, one of the commentaries I read this week, I love Puritans. Uh, Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritans, this is a guy who had a huge heart for the Lord. I mean, he just poured himself out over and over and over again. I mentioned Puritans a lot. If you don't know who the Puritans were, that name came as an insult. These were people who spent so much time in God's word, spent so much time singing his praises that other people like, you're so pure, you you Puritans, you're trying to make the rest of us look bad. They kind of did. They make us look bad. They make me look bad. But Thomas Watson is one of those guys who takes every word, and there's three chapters on on, on each term, because there's so much there. And it made me think of a friend of mine who uh, goes to school with me. I I go to seminary at at RTS. Um, His name's Johannes, and he's, he's here from Indonesia. And he finished his degree, but he's staying to do additional study. If you've ever taken any seminary classes, you know once you finish your degree, you don't want to see a classroom again. Uh, but he's doing independent studies uh, because he wants to learn more. And he told me, he said, I'm trying to wring out seminary every last drop I can before I go home. I love that about the Puritans. I love that when I approach scripture, it's knowing that it's saturated and you're just ringing out to get every last drop. This is God's word, eternal truth. How much can I wring out of it? I love that. Thomas Watson said, that Christ's kingdom is more excellent than any other kingdom because of its founder and maker, Christ, because of its perfection, because of its security, because of its stability, and because of its splendor. Because the kingdom of God is a place which we will one day see if we are in Christ and we trust in him for our salvation, but it's also a reality. It's not simply a location, God transcends time and space. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus gave us a lot of illustrations in Matthew. We're not going to go through them, but all of chapter 13 in Matthew is these examples of what the kingdom of God is. It is a place. It is a reality. and It is a person. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you, he meant himself. There was no king In Revelation, when they, when, when John saw it, because the light, the fortress itself was Christ, the kingdom of God came to earth and walked among us. It's very different than the kingdoms of this world, because the kingdom takes on the characteristics of its ruler, like we saw in Isaiah 66. What God makes is not made with human hands, but there are so many kingdoms. Throughout the years, we saw what happened to the Greeks and the Romans. One, way, one day, what will happen to the Americans? But a kingdom built on anything but Christ cannot stand. There's a reason why, when Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount, the last illustration that we see is that those whose house is built on a rock, the storms and the waves will come, but they will still be standing because their kingdom is founded in Christ. Their kingdom is not built in things by man's hands. I want to look at one last text before we close. Luke chapter 12. I love this connection of the teaching of Jesus's ministry. The father's provision and what he wants our hearts to long after. Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 29. Elsewhere, what does Jesus tell us about this kingdom of heaven? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world, all the other kingdoms seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, Provide yourselves with money bags. Do not grow old with treasures in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The good news is that there's a perfect king and he has a perfect kingdom. If you trust in him, there is where your treasure is. The happiness of this world that disappoints you can't shake you because you are founded on a solid rock. His truth and his teaching, the power of his preaching, and the restoration of his healing are only a glimpse of the things to come. The blessings of this life are not riches and earthly treasures. We all know that those things pass, those things fade. But our brokenness, our poverty before God brings eternal riches. Jesus came, the Son of God came to earth to bring people into his blessed rest, to walk with them in this life, but to point him, point them to his redemption, his salvation, and his kingdom. It was in their midst and would be displayed before them in complete glory one day. John saw a glimpse of what we look forward to in Christ. Our faith is in Christ. Our kingdom, our home is not this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who come before their God humbly trust in his salvation. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father sometimes after reading your word and declaring it, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to put into words the gravity of what we just read. And Lord, I pray that everyone here understands that, that they understand the power and the promise that comes through your eternal words. That your kingdom would be where, what we seek, that we seek eternal treasures not temporary provisions, because we know that you love us and we know that you'll provide. Lord, I just pray that in all we do, that Jesus' name would be glorified, that his kingdom would be declared, that no other kingdom would dilute the truth that we have come to know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to you or enters your kingdom except through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.